If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 32. Remember, chapter 32 is called the Song of Moses. It's meant to be sung. It's meant to be sung throughout all generations. And we find in Revelation chapter 15 that it's still being sung during the middle and end of the tribulation period. And the reason it's to be sung for all that time is it's full of prophecy. It tells us why we were punished because of our sins. How repentance is the answer to our sin. And once we repent and come back to God, how God will forgive us, restore us, and bring about the blessings that we've long since wanted. But there's more in it than that. Verse 39, where we are today, says, Now see. What's that mean, now see? Pay attention. This is really important. Don't miss this. Now see that I, even I, am he. Wait, I's and he's? What's he saying? That the Lord is God and there is no other. Do you remember we told us ourselves last week how to say there is no other? Ain owed. Says, I even I am he and there is no God besides me. The Lord is God, there is no other. So worshiping Baal, Ishtar, Moloch, and all those other false gods is worth what? Absolutely nothing. They have no answers for you. They have no help for you. They have no blessings for you. God didn't have them help him to deliver us in the past, and he won't need them to deliver us in the future. He says, I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Wait a minute. If you kill, how can you then make them alive? That's the power of the resurrection. So the resurrection is in the Lord our God. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. So last week we said, is this the only place in the scripture that it tells us that there is one and only one God and the Lord is God? There's a bunch, aren't there? So the first thing we did was turn to Isaiah chapter 44. So let's turn up here to Isaiah 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. There are so many people who tell me, Wayne, there's nothing in the scripture that says the Yeshua, our Lord, is God. There's just nothing. To which I say, there's lots and lots. Let's look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. Notice how Lord spelled. You know it's the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav that we call the Tetragrammaton. That is the Lord who was on Mount Sinai speaking to the people. And the Lord, the King of Israel. Who is the King of Israel? Who's going to sit on the throne and rule and reign throughout the eternal kingdom? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua is the Lord. Remember it says in Romans, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. It doesn't say that. If that was the way it was written, Lord would be an adjective and it's not. It's a noun. It actually reads, if you shall confess with thy mouth that the Lord is Yeshua. 
recognizing that the Lord all the way through the Old Testament is the same Yeshua who died for us 2,000 years ago and who will sit on the throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then it goes on, and his Redeemer. The word Redeemer in Hebrew is Goel, G-O apostrophe E-L. And in order to be a Redeemer, one must be a kinsman, a near kinsman, the nearest kinsman who has the ability and the willingness to pay the price for us that we cannot pay for ourselves. Is God in heaven as a spirit your kinsman? No, so he had to take on a body of flesh and blood to be our relative. You can't be a kinsman unless you're a relative. And we learn from the book of Ruth. That is the nearest relative. So if there was any relative of yours on this earth that could redeem you from your sin, then Yeshua wouldn't qualify because they would be closer to you. But do you have any relative who can pay the price for your sins? The answer is no. He's the only one who has the ability and the willingness. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Keep a finger here and go to Revelation 22. I don't want anybody to think I'm reading something into here. Look at Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, or in the Hebrew, I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's Messiah's words. What color are they? They're red. He says in his own words, I am the first and last. That's Isaiah 44, 6. I'm the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other. Ain't owed. Verse 7. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set an order for me. In other words, since he's the only one who can tell you the end from the beginning, if somebody else thinks they can, he says, let him try. Who in here would like to tell me who will be president of the United States in 200 years by first and last name and where they were born? We go, that's not even possible. But how far in advance did God name Josiah by name? About 400 years. How long in advance did he name Cyrus by name? 125 years. What is that for God? That's nothing. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, the Lord says, I told you how it was that we created the heavens and the earth and how things progressed through the history, how they are now and how they will be up until the new heavens and the new earth. Who else could do that? No one. It says, let them show these to them. Let them show these to them. Let them show the doubters. The prophecies that the Lord has made and how they've been fulfilled. Did God wait until the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria in 722 to tell him it was going to happen? No, he told them long in advance. And he said, once Assyria is gone, then Babylon's going to take Judah. And that was 125 years later. How many things did God get wrong in his prophecies? Not a one. Verse 8 says, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You're my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? 
Indeed, there is no other rock, I know not one. See that word rock and how it's capitalized? Keep a finger here and go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, uh-oh, what does therefore mean? Because of what was just said, which is, come judgment day, the Lord will say to those who practice lawlessness, what? Well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, for I never knew you. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who is the rock? Messiah is the rock. Yeshua is the rock. And then we looked at Isaiah chapter 45. Two verses. Well, maybe a few more than two. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That, meaning here's the reason, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Why would God have a singing about this all the way even into the tribulation period. As the false prophet is saying, there's your God, this man standing in the temple with this huge idolatrous image commanding you to worship him. What are people singing? There is no other God. Ain't owed. There is none other. Same chapter, Isaiah 45 verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. That's a legal challenge. God says, if I have wronged you in some way, tell me about it. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. How many more times does God need to say this? Apparently a lot. Isaiah chapter 64 is where we're supposed to pick up today. But I just wanted our ears to already be tingling. Isaiah 64 verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. God is very bold. He says, from the very beginning of creation, has there been any other God who blessed those who served it? The answer is no. 
Hosea chapter 13. Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. Back in Isaiah 64, is that ain't owed as well? It's the same concept. Okay. The Thank words you. themselves wouldn't be there, but the same concept. Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. Yet I am the Lord your God. See the word Lord there, how it's spelled? That's that same four Hebrew letters, the Tetragrammaton. The one where the Lord said, I will be whom I will be. Meaning, if you are his loving child, his servant, he's a loving God. And if you are his enemy, he is a righteous judge. Yet I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for, because, there is no Savior besides me. The one and only Savior. It's always been our Messiah Yeshua. John 1 says, What in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's go to John 11. John chapter 11, verse 25. Just this week I was listening to a theologian on YouTube talking about how the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was a mean, arrogant, vengeful God. Good thing we have this nice, new, loving God. Does God change? No. Is there another God? No. What they're forgetting is, I will be whom I will be means how God reacts to us depends upon our relationship to him. John chapter 11, verse 25. Yeshua said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He is the resurrection and the life. Does that sound like Isaiah? It does. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. In other words, what did Peter and the other apostles preach? That resurrection comes through whom? Yeshua, through Yeshua, through Jesus. And, and the scribes and Pharisees were saying, no, 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 it's through God. And the apostles are probably looking a little confused, going, yeah, that's what we said. <laughs> 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 
But the leaders of the temple did not understand who Yeshua is. Acts chapter 24, verse 15. Acts chapter 24, verse 15. Now we're going to start in verse 14 for context. And because I love verse 14. As soon as we find it. Whoops, we have a chat out there. Let's see if it's a question. What was the Hosea verse, please? Hosea verse was chapter 13, verse 4. Alrighty, Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 14. Paul's speaking. But this I say to you, that according to the way, what's the way? That's what the believers in Messiah were first called in Acts chapter 9. Which they call a sect, that is, Israel recognized it just as another sect of Judaism, not as another religion. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and now the way. Just another sect of Judaism. So I worship the God of my fathers. Not a new God, the same God. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Messiah in Matthew 5, 17 and 18 said there's not a single letter or piece of a letter in the law that will be abolished until heaven and earth pass away. Paul said, I believe all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. <coughs> and that resurrection we just read in Acts chapter 4 is through our Messiah, Yeshua. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about resurrection. That's the entire theme of 1 Corinthians 15. Once we finish Deuteronomy, which book are we going to do? 1 Thessalonians. Every single <laughs> chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reminder of the resurrection and the rapture. That Messiah will bring home his people. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21. For since by man came death. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Messiah the firstfruits. That's Matthew chapter 27 right? There are many who were raised at his resurrection. Afterward, those who are Messiahs at his coming, that's Revelation chapter 4, that's the main harvest. And then the gleanings are in Revelation 20, when the tribulation period ends. And all those who died as believers during the tribulation period, who were not saved when the main rapture came in Revelation 4, will be raised. Again, this tells us, that the resurrection comes through what? Through Messiah, through Yeshua, our Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
starting in verse 1. Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For we know, does no mean we guess? We sort of think maybe? No, it doesn't, does it? We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, talking about our bodies, should we die? We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. <coughs> Meaning what? Our resurrected body is incorruptible, it's immortal, it doesn't get sick, it doesn't die. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. What Paul's saying is, boy, would I like to be in heaven in my immortal body right now instead of living here on this earth. Why would Paul think that? Was Paul stoned more than once? Was he shipwrecked? Was he beaten? He was whipped in the temples many times in the synagogues. So why did he choose to stay? Why didn't he just give up and die? It wasn't time. There were more people to be saved. And Paul would rather suffer what he suffered in this world than to risk somebody missing out on salvation. You've heard of synagogue discipline, right? When Paul was beaten in the synagogues, he could have said, no, I'm just going to leave. He could only be beaten if he said, I'm going to stay. He would take the beating, then he was allowed to remain and continue to teach. That's why they beat him so often, hoping he'd give up and leave. But he said, I bear the stripes for your salvation. Verse 3 says, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Which means we must maintain our faith. We must maintain our faith. Hebrews chapter 6. Let me open a can of worms. Not to be eaten because they were unclean, but just to be discussed. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 5 ends with, by now you ought to be teachers. Chapter 6 begins more positively. Therefore, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Messiah. By elementary, he means these are what every single believer in Messiah must know and understand. Let us go on to perfection. That word perfection means spiritual maturity. Not laying again the foundation of. He says these are the elementary principles. Number one, repentance from dead works. Repentance from your sin. That's the very first thing. In Acts chapter 2, when they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What was Peter's first word? Repent. Repent. That's why I get all confused when I hear preachers today saying, No, 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 don't repent. Don't repent. That shows a lack of faith. What does the Bible say? That repentance is a basic principle. And a faith toward God. One never repents of their sins until they come to faith in God, right? Of the doctrine of baptisms. 
of laying on of hands. That's called the smicha. The smicha. Of resurrection of the dead. What does Paul call that? An elementary principle. And of eternal judgment. That means there's only two eternal destinations. The new Jerusalem where Messiah dwells or the lake of fire where you don't want to be. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 35. Remember we just finished Daniel chapter 12. It talked about the two resurrections. In Hebrews chapter 11, called the honor roll of the faithful, we have verse 35 which says, Women receive their dead raised to life again. Name me one time that a woman had her child raised back from the dead. Lazarus was called back out of the grave. The Shunammite woman. Uh huh. The one that Elijah and Elisha raised the child from the dead. Uh huh. What's that? The Roman centurion's son was healed. Uh huh. The daughter that Messiah wrapped the seed seed around the wrist. So we have many examples where Messiah performed resurrections in his lifetime. It says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That's talking about from the book of Maccabees. Remember Hannah and her sons? That each son was put to death in front of her eyes because they refused to turn away from God and embrace Greek culture and religion. And then finally she was put to death too. Says that they might obtain a better resurrection. If they had turned away from God, renounce God, and turn and embrace the pagan ways of the Greeks, which resurrection would they be in? The first or the second? The second resurrection, which is the resurrection of death. But by hanging on to their faith, refusing to give it up, They will be in the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. I have a chat out there. Let's see what it is. Hosea 13, 4. Yes. Uh huh. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What if we turn away from our faith? Suppose for a moment, when the rapture comes, I'm not ready. 
We've seen the movie Left Behind, right? Who was the one left? The preacher. And in the tribulation period, the false messiah has the soldiers put a sword to my throat. And they say, renounce your faith in Messiah or die. What if I say, I renounce Messiah, I take the mark, I save my life. What did I do? I died eternally. I gave away eternal life for the lake of fire. Let's go back to Deuteronomy before I get preachy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. You see why we couldn't finish that verse last week? Just too much good stuff in it. But verse 30 says, For, what does for mean? Because I raise my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever. Who's the I? That's the Lord. When the Lord raises his hand to heaven and says, As I live forever, that is an oath. Does God break his oath? No. Not ever. No. Let's go to Isaiah 45, 23. <coughs> Isaiah 45, verse 23. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. I have sworn by myself. Why does God swear by himself? There's there's nothing higher to swear by. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. What does that mean? When God speaks... Is that word going to change? No. Is it going to fail? No. It's going to do exactly what God sent it out to do. There is no plan B. There is no, whoops, that didn't work. Let me try again. (coughs) It goes on to say, that to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. That means every knee ever born is going to bow before the Lord. Some in this life, and some come judgment day. What good is it going to do come judgment day to, for the first time, take a knee before the Lord? Answer is none. Can't you come to judgment day and say, I'd like to change my vote? What does the scripture say? It's appointed unto man. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. What did Lazarus and the rich man teach us? Can you cross from one to the other? The answer is no. Go to Jeremiah chapter 22. Verse 5. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, 
that this house shall become a desolation. Did they hear? No. Did the house become a desolation? Yes. When God makes an oath or a covenant on his name, will he break it? Give me a psalm. Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. If you don't have it on a t-shirt yet, I recommend you put it on one. I'm serious. Hebrews chapter 6. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 6. Yeah, we all have heard the joke. How did Abraham make coffee? Hebrews it. Yeah. <laughs> Hebrews 6. Got to admit it is still funny. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, to be more specific and precise. Where's Hebrews 6? It's right after Hebrews 5. So, yep, there's pages still turning. Here we go. Hebrews 6, 17 says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability up oh, what's immutability? Don't change. Don't change. Of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So what are these two immutable things, these things that cannot possibly change? First God's word, second, the oath upon himself. What's that, Daniel? Did you have a third? No. So what does this mean when you hear somebody say, oh, but God changed his mind and it's okay to eat piggies now? Does the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 4, say, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? And the answer, no one. The word of God and the oath that he took to confirm those words. So, verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. That's number one. His words. His counsel. Number two. Confirmed it by an oath. Did he have to confirm it by an oath to make it true and immutable? Nope. No. No. The mere fact that he spoke it. Because it says God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. So merely speaking it is enough. But to make sure they understood. Then God confirmed it on an oath on himself. Neither of which will ever fail. Will ever be broken. Will ever be changed. And you should be out there going, thank God that that's true. Amen. Otherwise, what if come judgment day, the Lord says, I changed my mind. Oops. Salvation is not by faith. You had to bring me two goats. <clears throat> Where are your two goats? Well, sorry. But God does not lie. God does not change. So we know that come judgment day, salvation will still 
be by faith, as it always has been. Jacob that complained against his father-in-law about saying you changed my wages. Yeah, talking to Laban, huh? Yeah. You changed the deal after the fact. Well, that was Laban, not God. Right. Well, I mean, it was just a, I, I was bringing that. Yeah, to show the difference between right. man and God. What does Laban mean? Do you know? White. You with white hair, it means white. Yep. Yeah, it refers to the fact he had white hair. Yeah, whitey. Just like Edom was called Edom because he had red hair. Edom means red. Okay, I digress. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Verse 40 was, I raise my hand to heaven and say as I live forever. Now verse, 43, uh, verse 41 tells us what that is. If I wet my glittering sword, wet W-H-E-T, means to get it stained with blood. And my hand takes hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. This brings us back to the concept we discussed a couple weeks ago, maybe less, about there are two categories with God, my servants and my enemies. Right here, when God takes hold of the sword and bathes it in blood, is that going to be the blood of his servants? No. Does God bring his wrath upon his children? No. Does it tell us that in the Bible? Yes. Let's start in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Anybody ever hear a preacher say that the children of God have to go through the tribulation period so God can pour his wrath out on them? Let's see what the Bible says. Isaiah 1, verse 24. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries, and take vengeance on my enemies. That sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 32, doesn't it? Why would God want his people singing the song of Moses during the tribulation period when the world is terrified at the wrath of God being poured out? Is it for his children? What's that? I was on Isaiah 124. And I never mind somebody asking because sometimes I wasn't and thought I was. But in this case, I really was. Go to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 is about the Lord's return. It's yet future. Hasn't happened yet. But if you know God's prophets, can they be wrong? No. If they're a true prophet of God, every word will come to pass. Isaiah 66, verse 14. God compares his servants to his enemies. Verse 14 says, are we there? When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection, shall be known to his servants. And his indignation, the wrath of God being poured out, 
to his enemies. Do you see any indication of the wrath being poured out in the servants or the hand of the Lord being known to his enemies? No. How many groups of people were there in that verse? Two. Psalm 68. Psalm 68, verse 1. It's a psalm of David. It's also a song made famous by Paul Wilbur. If you've heard the song, Let God Arise. Verse 1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee before him. Again, like Deuteronomy, his enemies are those who hate him. The word hate is not the way we use it in English. The words love and hate are action verbs talking about how we treat people. If you love the Lord your God, do you disobey him? Do you turn to pagan idols? Sexual immorality? Unclean foods? No, that wouldn't be love. That would be hate. That would be treating him like he's irrelevant to you. Yep. Psalm 72. How many psalms did Solomon write? Well, this is one. Psalm 72, verse 9. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Who in Genesis 3 did God say he would lick the dust? The serpent. That's where we get the term bite the dust. Yeah, they're going to die. Is that so they can get to heaven quicker? No, it is not. <laughs> Psalm 97. Psalm 97. When God says something once, that's enough. But what, when he, what does it mean when he says it over and over and over again? Is he hoping we will come to understand it one day? Yeah. <coughs> Psalm 97, verse 3. A fire goes from before him and burns up his enemies round about. When will this happen? Look at verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes from before him and burns up his enemies round about. Does that sound like Revelation chapter 19 as the Lord returns to 
end the battle of Armageddon and to establish his kingdom. Verse 4 says, His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Some will be happier about it than others, right? That's a fact. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Verse 13. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13. Yep, Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. That's a man of war. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies, not his servants. Not his children, against his enemies. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 18. Isaiah 59, verse 18. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. Do you want to be one of his enemies or his adversaries on that day? No. Yes, Bill. Uh, are the, the coastlands reference is that to the Gentile the, nations? Where the, where the, uh, yeah, the, Gentile, the, the Gentile nation. Who's coming against Jerusalem at Armageddon? Mm -hmm. All those Gentile nations. Those ones to the north of Mount, where Jerusalem, uh, Israel is now, they're all in south. Yeah, if you look around the Mediterranean Sea, that's where the Gentile world powers were Egypt, Assyria. Rome, Greece, etc. Yep. If we go back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 41, for just a moment. Verse 41 described, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. Let's look specifically at verses that talk about those who hate me. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Well, everybody knows those are the Ten Commandments. Or actually, in Hebrew, the Ten Words. Exodus chapter 20. We'll start in verse 4 for context, but the key verse we're going to look at is 5. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Does that mean a roast turkey on Thanksgiving? No, not that kind of carving. I'm talking about a pagan idol. Any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. If those who love him keep his commandments, what do those who hate him do? They're contrary. They don't keep the commandments of God. That's how God determines that they hate him. Is they choose something other than God as being better than him. Why would you set aside the Lord God and worship an idol unless you thought the idol was superior? Yeah, that's what it usually come down, comes down to, huh? Deuteronomy chapter 5. Of course, we know Deuteronomy chapter 5 repeats the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verses 8 through 10 tell us the very same thing. So Wayne, why show us the same words a second time? To show that they did not change. They're still the same. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's under the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of... Those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, that's of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Go to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Chapter nineteen. Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him, that's Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Look at that question. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Go to John 15. Go 
John 15. Starting in verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, like what? Healing the sick, raising the dead, etc. They would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in the Torah. They hated me without a cause. Yep, the law, the Torah. Mm -hmm. Why would Messiah quote from the Torah? It's important. And it never changes. He wrote it. He knew it. He knew it better than anybody. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. We're up to verse 42. After saying, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me, he says in verse 42, I will make my arrows drunk with blood. Does that mean lots of people are going to die when Messiah returns? It does. And my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Lord shall devour flesh. Where does he tell us more precisely who's in deep trouble? In Zechariah 14. So to take them in order. Let's start with Isaiah 66. Then Zechariah 14. <laughs> in other words. There's lots of different verses. But let's start with Isaiah 66. Oh, okay. 65. I'm, I'm willing. You don't have to twist my arm. No. Isaiah 65 is about the Lord's return and what makes him really, really angry. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 2. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. What does rebellious mean? They will not listen. They're stiff-knit. They won't repent. Who walk in a way that is not good. If it's not good, what is it? Bad. According to their own thoughts. There's the key. They will not listen to God's commandments. They say, I will live how I want to live. And he can just lump it. I don't want to stand close to them come judgment day to you. Mm. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens. What's wrong with that? That's idol worship, idolatry. And burn incense on altars of brick, that is to false gods, idolatry. Who sit among the graves, that's uncleanness. What if you sit among the graves and then walk into God's holy temple? What's going to happen to you? Crispy critter. 
and spend the night in the tombs. Who eats swine's flesh? Can you believe it? They eat pork. And the broth of abominable things, that's other unclean foods, is in their vessels. And who say, that is say to the other peoples, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. And Isaiah 66 says, what's going to happen to these people when the Lord returns? That's Isaiah 66, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come with fire, with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge who? All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. That's idolatry. Eating swine's flesh. That's pork. If you eat breakfast at any of the restaurants around here, ask them whether they use lard in their biscuits. And most of them will say, of course we do. Or... Uh Pork and their green beans. Pork and pork, green pork, beans. Oh, not, not pork and black eyed peas and such. As black eyed peas, all those kind of yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. It's because they want to make sure that you get your daily fill of piggy. But what does the Lord say? It says they shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Well, Instead of going to Zechariah next, we may as well stop in Ezekiel, then go to Zechariah. Ezekiel 38. But I can't think of a more descriptive passage on the anger of the Lord and his destruction in Zechariah 14, so we cannot skip it. But Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 18, this is about the battle of Gog and Magog that takes place in the first half of the tribulation period. And it will come to pass at the same time that is in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Just think of Isaiah 65 and 66. For in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Wow. Does it sound like God's a little unhappy? Go to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. Verse 12. When the Lord returns in Revelation 19, he speaks a word and the people die. Zechariah 14 tells you how. Verse 12. 
And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Does that sound like? Neutron balls, Sounds like Raiders of the Lost Ark, because that's where they got it. So let's go to Revelation 19.11. These all describe events that take place at the same time. Revelation 19. Verses 11 to 21. You hear many people say, Wayne, this cannot happen. Because God is a God of love and he would never allow anyone to get hurt. Let's just read it, huh? As Daniel says, I will be whom I will be. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Do you understand ancient traditions? If a king is coming in peace, he rides a donkey. How did Messiah ride into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? On a donkey. When he comes on a horse, he's coming for war. Yep, so he's returning on the white horse. That means he's coming for war. And he who sat on him is called Faithful and True, which from Isaiah 11, verse 4, we know is our Messiah, Yeshua. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. What's fire in prophecy? Judgment. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's his talit. The talit was what was wrapped around his face after the crucifixion. <coughs> the scripture says they had put a crown of thorns on his head and it ripped his beard from his face and the blood would have soaked his talit. And his name is called the word of God. Gee, I wonder where that was in the Bible. John 1, 1, right. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Are those angels? No, those are the raptured and resurrected saints. Follow them on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Is that Psalm 2? That's Psalm 2. He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God. Is that Isaiah 63? That's Isaiah 63. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's in the seat here. The fringes. The name of God. The Tetragrammaton. yod heh vav -Hey. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. That you may eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains. The flesh of mighty men. The flesh of horses and of those who sit on them. And the flesh of all people. Free and slave. Both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, false messiah, or beast of Revelation 13. Take your pick. 
the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. In Psalm 2 it says, they're coming against Jerusalem to keep Messiah from returning to rule and reign. And does God sit in heaven shivering in fear? No, it says he laughs him to derision. Verse 20, then the beast was captured within the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. Which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Do you know what brimstone is, by the way? It's sulfur. Sulfur. Do you know how much burning sulfur stinks? The lake of fire is going to stink so badly from the sulfur and the burning flesh. Even if you weren't on fire, it would be miserable. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. There's much yet to be said. Verse 43 Rejoice, O Gentiles. That's the nations other than Israel. With his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. And render vengeance to his adversaries. And he will provide atonement for his land and his people. My Jewish Tanakh translates this verse a little different. It says, O nations, sing, which is a commandment, the praise of his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, etc. But whichever reading you take of it, it means the same thing. God is calling the Gentile nations to repent and turn to him before we come to the battle of Armageddon. Did he not do the same thing in Psalm 2? Call him to repentance to kiss the son before he gets angry. So God never pours out vengeance without warning. Let's look at Psalm 65 for a moment. Psalm 65. Wayne? Yes, I'm. Verse 43 you just read, rejoice, as can also be translated, sing. And from a musical standpoint, of course, scripture tells us that he inhabits the praises of his people. Yeah. And the praises of his people strengthens the arm of the Lord as he goes to do battle on so many fronts for us, even now, today. Mm -hmm. Does God love it when we sing his praises? He absolutely. He absolutely loves it. Psalm chapter 65, verses 1 to 3. Thank you. A psalm of David, a song. It's a song that we sing in here, if you remember. It says, Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion or Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed. 
of you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Yeah, it's Paul Wilbur. But verse 2 is the key I want you to see here. Oh, you who hear prayer to you, all flesh will come. Talking about in the Messianic kingdom, all people are going to come and praise the Lord. It won't just be a few people scattered here and there throughout the world. But there is coming a time when, God bless you, when Messiah rules and reigns from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, when all people will come and praise the Lord and sing his praises and rejoice in his presence. And for whom will God provide atonement? For all those who come to him in faith. That's after Armageddon, right? Yep, that's after Armageddon. Which means all the unsaved people are dead. All those who go alive into the kingdom are believers. And they're going to come from year to year to worship the Lord, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and hear Messiah and his priests teach the Torah. Definition of overcomers is in 1 John chapter 5. So let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. Yep, and put down that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven promises made to the overcomers. That's why it's so important to know what it means to be an overcomer. So go to 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, it's verses 1 through 5. Let me let you find it first. First John 5, verses 1 through 5. Whoever, that's a very broad word, isn't it? Whoever believes the Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes Yeshua is the Son of God? And notice how keeping of the commandments out of the love of God is intimately involved in faith. Let's go next to the book of Jude, since we're in the New Testament anyway. To the book of Jude. Jude was the half-brother of our Messiah, Yeshua. His name was Judah. But Jude is close. If you ask me what chapter, that means you haven't gotten to Jude yet. Because there's only one. (coughs) 
You know what? I don't want to do this one yet, but keep a finger here. <laughs> All right. Now, just keep a finger here or a piece of paper. Because given the time, it may not be till next week. Let's go to Psalm 79 instead. Psalm 79. I want to defer Jude chapter 1 verse 9 until we get to the last chapter, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. So Psalm 79 verses 9 to 10. It says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. As we go back to Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. The last part of it said, he will provide atonement for his land and his people. And that's what Psalm 79 verses 8 to 10 assured us. Verse 44, so Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, not Nun, he had parents, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Verse 43 ends the song of Moses. It ends with what? Vengeance to his adversaries and atonement for his land and his people. Do you see why this is still being sung in the tribulation period? God will bring an end to the adversaries and will provide atonement for his land and his people. Verse 45, Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. Is that to the mixed multitude too? Yep. Yes, that's what all Israel tells us. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. Some of the words of this law, is that what it says? No, it says all the words of this law. Why is it careful? Why is it you need to be careful to observe all the words of the Torah? Because that's what this word law is in Hebrew, the Torah. The commandments, statutes, and judgments. Why? Because God promises blessing for obedience and judgment for disobedience. Which do you prefer, the carrot or the stick? Verse 47, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. What's he mean? If they go into the, the land of Canaan, and acts like the Canaanites, will God allow them to remain in the land? No. 
It's only by their obedience that God blesses them with the presence in the land and all his bountiful provision. This also is for us to get into the kingdom. It's also for us. Does the scripture say that there is still a Sabbath rest for the people of God? Where is that? Hebrews chapter 4. Now let's go see what the Bible says. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. What exactly he means is, don't do it. Yeah, if we go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And if you know me, you know we're going to start in chapter 3. So you may as well just stop in chapter 3. Because remember, in the original, there were no chapter breaks. Uh, I made yes, Bill? A, I made an observation in my life of how it caused me to change my outlook is my goal, I had to change it from getting to heaven, buying fire insurance attitude, to loving God. Yep. And if, if, I, if, I, if I have found that when I direct my energies and efforts and thoughts and, and hopes and desire to love him, obey him, then I ain't got to worry about that other stuff. That's absolutely that's right. God, Amen. beyond all understanding, yep. comes in. Yep. You're right. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Or should we start earlier? Let's start in verse 7. <laughs> Yeah, Genesis 1 1, and we'll just skip. No. Let's start in verse 7 because it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So we know this isn't just somebody like Paul sitting back and pontificating. It says, As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Talking about in the wilderness, the children of Israel hardened their hearts against God. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. By brethren, who's he talking to? Paul's talking to believers. It's a warning to believers. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Why would he say this if it's not possible to depart from the living God? 
It is possible. Just don't do it. But exhort one another daily. What's he mean one another? You and I exhort each other. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have become partakers of Messiah. No, that's not what it says. It says, for we have become partakers of Messiah if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That means we can turn away. But don't. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard, rebelled. Meaning who was at Mount Sinai and heard the voice of God with their own ears and then rebelled against God. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Did they see God with their own perception? They didn't see his face, but did they see the mountain on fire? Did they see it quake? Did they hear the trumpets sound louder and louder? Did they hear the voice of God with their own ears? That's the beginning of the conference. It says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. <laughs> Belief isn't that there's a God in heaven. Belief is that you will listen when he tells you something. So verse 18, those who did not obey... Why did they not obey? Because of their unbelief. Verse 4, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, not since a promise remained past tense, but remains currently, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, those in the wilderness heard the gospel message. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter, it's actually will enter, it's not do enter, will enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. Wait a minute. Do you think he meant of the first day of the week? No. Says, for he spoke in a certain way of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Remember back in Genesis chapters. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we see twice the word rest. And what is that Hebrew word? Sabbath. So they shall not enter my Sabbath. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, that is in the psalm that David wrote, today, 
after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will harden, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That word rest in Greek is sabbatismos. It means specifically and only a Sabbath rest. So God swore that those of faith will enter into his Sabbath rest. And those who it was first preached to in the wilderness failed to achieve it because they were disobedient because they did not have faith. Back to Deuteronomy 32 because I'm chasing that Ibex a little far probably. That was four, four what? Where did we end up? Verse 9 I think. Yeah. Back to Deuteronomy 32. Verse 48. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession. I've been on Mount Nebo. Have any of you? It's a high precipice that overlooks the Jordan Valley. So you can see Jericho. You can see the promised land. But you're separated from it by the Jordan River. Verse 50, And die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. See that word, just as? This is really something very cool. If you go to Jordan today, to a place called Ein Musa, that's where Moses struck the rock the second time when he was supposed to speak to it. And the water still flows from the rock. You can get a drink from it, you can stick your feet in it, but hopefully after people have already (laughs) drunk from it. But the water then flows down to Petra, where Israel will flee in the tribulation period. But on the mountain above it, that's Mount Hor, where Aaron is buried. So Aaron is buried overlooking Petra, where he will keep watch over the children of Israel from his perch up there. By the same token... Moses is buried on the top of Mount Nebo where he can overlook the promised land and keep watch over the children of Israel. Of course, he's dead, so he can't literally keep watch, but symbolically, he's watching over the children of Israel. Verse 51. Oh, wait. Let's go to Numbers chapter 20. Let's go see where God said, you don't get to go in the land. Or he struck the rock when he should have spoken to it. That's Numbers chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. 
and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so the children gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Can't you just hear them whining? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle and meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. He said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and a congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now, don't miss this in verse 12. The Lord doesn't say, Because you did not obey me. He said, Because you did not believe me. Did Moses not believe that there was a Lord? Of course he knew there was the Lord. So how did he demonstrate his lack of belief here? It means he did not obey. The Lord equates, you did not obey me, with you did not believe me. Was there an underlying meaning of the striking of the rock? The rock being yes. Striking of the rock is symbolic of the crucifixion. How many times was Messiah to be crucified? Once. So when he strikes the rock twice, he breaks the picture. But, but he was told to speak to the rock. Right. He had already struck the rock once before and brought water out of it. Messiah to be crucified once. After that, speak to the rock. And Moses didn't speak to the rock. He struck it again. He broke the picture. The pictures are important. Yeah. Okay, I cannot contain myself. So, let's turn to Jude chapter 1, because you've got your finger there anyway. Jude chapter 1. i got to work on my impulse control. There is something that occurs in the book of Jude that used to make me wonder. Jude, verse 9. Jude, verse 9. Let me give everybody a chance to find it. (coughs) Yet Michael the archangel, (coughs) 
you. That's the same Michael of Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation 12. Yeah, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Why is Michael contending with the devil about the body of Moses? The devil says, he sinned when he disobeyed you, therefore he's mine. That Moses has lost his eternal life, his eternal glory, he's mine. And what does Michael say? But he repented. Does the fact that we have committed a sin mean we are forever lost? No. But that was something that the devil did not want to accept. He thinks that everyone who commits a sin should be his. What does the word Satan mean? It's the adversary. That's the term for a prosecutor in a Jewish criminal court. So he's the prosecutor. Look what he did. Look what she did. Look what they did. But Messiah is our advocate. I mean, he's our defense lawyer. And he's also the judge. It doesn't get any better than to have the judge be your defense lawyer. Okay, back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 32. So the fact that Moses committed this sin does not mean he was eternally lost. He repented with all his heart. What about the rest of the children of Israel who defied God in the wilderness? They continued to defy, didn't they? They continued to demonstrate a lack of faith through their disobedience. So what should we learn from it? Is it better to repent or to stubbornly continue in sin? That sounds kind of like Paul, doesn't it? Romans 6.1, what shall we do then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Or in Greek, major noito. No way, Jose. So let's read on in Deuteronomy 32, we're up to verse 51. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. We just read about that. Yet you shall see the land before you, that you shall not go there into the land which I'm giving to the children of Israel. You know what that verse tells us? That sin has consequences. Even though when we repent, it doesn't take away our eternal life, but there's still consequences. Think of David and what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Did the child still die? The child still died. We think that if we repent and say, God, I'm sorry that, well, he just will forget it all. But that's not always the case. Just because God didn't kill him on the spot? Oh, it's not just that. 
How did he act after that? He obeyed. And that's the definition of repentance. He turned from the sin back to obeying the Lord. And of course, in the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears with the Lord? Moses and Elijah. So if Moses had not repented, would he have been there? No. <laughs> eh, we're not going there. <coughs> Chapter 33. Is that a good place to stop? <laughs> we still have five minutes. Can't quit here. Yeah, I know. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. We're talking about the the Mount Sinai, where God gives the commandments to the people. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them. Ten thousands of saints. What do you know about saints? They keep the commandments of God. Well, the children of Israel promised to, didn't they? They promised, everything you said, we will do. So the Lord refers to them as ten thousands of his saints. And from his right hand came a fiery law for them. Have you ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments? As the fingers of fire come down and right through the stone? Yes. Let's start with Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. So it's a very hard realization to realize that those that started out being called saints ended up dying in the wilderness for disobedience caused by a lack of belief. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12 verse 16. Exodus chapter 12, verse 16. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. What's holy mean? Set apart to God. Convocation means a gathering together to rehearse. Talking about the first day of unleavened bread, which teaches about Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. And then to chapter 15, verse 11. This is song number one in our songbook, isn't it? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, <coughs> fearful in praises, doing wonders? The Lord is glorious in holiness, meaning what? Holy. 
He is not like the world. He is set apart from the world. Why does he want us to be holy? He says in Leviticus 11, Be ye holy for I am holy. So be set apart to me. Set apart different from the world. The holy ones, that's what the word saints means. Is be ye holy for I am holy. Let's go to Leviticus 10.10. Yep, Leviticus 10.10. Leviticus 10.10. This is one of the first commandments given to Aaron the high priest. And that's don't drink wine or intoxicating drink before you go into the tabernacle to worship. Verse 10, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Why is it important to distinguish between holy and unholy? Can't you mix them together? No, that's called what? Lukewarmness. Syncretism. God says don't do it. 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter two. Verse nine. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. God only gives two categories here the saints. And the wicked. Another way to describe that is the servants versus the enemies or the adversaries. Is, is there the, a distinction to be made whenever the, like in the previous, the, the bad was placed before the good, or when the good is here, where the good is placed before the bad in the is there a distinction to be made in understanding of where the emphasis is being placed? Or, no, or it, just Hebrew sentences don't work that way. Hebrew sentences, you can rearrange words in almost almost any order. <coughs> okay. So. So in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the telling of or the describing the, the description of what's being said, if it if if the if the bad is before the good or the good is before the bad, it doesn't make any difference in, in understanding. Right. Okay. Right. First Samuel two nine. The saints versus the wicked. In Second Chronicles chapter six, we're almost done. Second Chronicles chapter six. Verse 41. Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. That is to the mercy seat on the ark in the temple. 
you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in goodness. Makes you want to be a saint, doesn't it? Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 3. Psalm 16, verse 3. Looking at the word saints. Whether we should want to be one or not. Psalm 16, verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Again, what does the word saints here mean? It means the holy ones. The ones that are set apart unto God by obedience. And then Psalm 37, verse 28. I'm sorry. Psalm 37, verse 28. And verse 28 begins with 4, so we're going to start with 27. Depart from evil and do good. What's another way to say that? Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Repent. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. So does God promise eternal life to the saints? Yes, that's what it means to dwell forevermore. <coughs> they are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be what? Cut off. That means they're going to die. The saints, the holy ones, will live forever. The wicked, those who are rejecting God, they don't have the same promise of blessing. Well, I've run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy 33, continuing verse 2.